Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. Perhaps uh, there's a newsletter going out uh, into the halls of Monte di Paschi, the uh, oldest bank uh, in the world, at least on record, uh, from Siena. And the European Central Bank has denied Monte di Paschi's bid for more time in order to raise capital. Well, what happens next and what does this mean? Well, it means we turn to Yalman Onoran. Yalman is our senior writer for banking and finance, and he is also the author of a wonderful book entitled Zombie Banks. Yaman, it's a pleasure to have you. Great to be here. You uh, you seem to coin the term zombie banks, or at least you, you've made it a little bit more uh, high profile, shall we say. <laughs> is Monte de Paschi the mountain of piety? Is it a zombie bank? It definitely is. It's the oldest bank, and it's also a zombie. So maybe it was due to die a long time ago and didn't. But uh, Italy has, has um, the worst of zombie banks right now because... Um, it its economy has been stuck in recessions and, and slow growth for decades. That means um, bad loans have piled up and up and up, and they haven't. Uh, and and some banks are just never. They're losing money constantly, not making money. Their balance sheets are in horrible shape, and and they should die. And 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 also another big problem is they they're overbanked. I mean, they have there are too many bank branches in every street of Siena or in every street of. A uh, major Italian city, and thus they can't. They has over competition. They cannot make money. So, so there are too many dead banks, which also hurts the good banks. I mean, some of Italy's top banks are actually in great shape, but they get hurt by the same zombie banks surrounding them, uh, because investors cannot tell which is a zombie and which is not. So, this is a major zombie bank problem issue, and things are really coming to head. So, let's see if they actually. Fix it. Although I, you know, I, I, I worry about stopgag solutions that that constantly are done around the world. Um, well, hold on a sec. Let's talk about Monte de Paschi. The fact that the ECB rejected their request for more time uh, to prepare a five billion euro capital increase. This is this is an odd move to me. Why wouldn't the ECB give it to them and then allow them to avoid uh, an Italian government bailout, which seems to be a, a problematic approach from from a legal perspective, given the current guidelines? Um, you know. The, the, we, we have a little bit reporting from Italy on, on why the ECB rejected it, which is basically they, they weren't sure if the market conditions would improve if they're giving more time. Uh, what if it, it actually got worse? Um, but at the end of the day, I, the ECB has given them and the, and the regulators have given them so much time. It's, I mean, Monte Paschi problems have been going on for years. It's not last weekend's problem. It's not last month's problem. Um, so they've had so much time to fix this. And, and they've constantly put off the solutions. And not only that, every time they raised these capital, I mean, they've had three, three capital or two or three capital increases, and they just burn through them because well, they're losing money constantly. So let's say the ECB is trying to push them to the edge, push them to a more uh, concrete solution. What is the path forward at this point? 
Um, I mean, there are multiple options, but you know, basically what they've been trying to avoid with the government of, of Matteo Renzi, which is on its way out because he resigned a few days ago, um, what they, he's been trying to avoid is, is um, burning junior um, bondholders, um, almost half of which are, are depositors in the bank. So little guys, um, small business owners, uh, um, uh, regular depositors, uh, uh, who who had junior debt in the bank and and they would be wiped out because the European rules require some sort of a bail in of junior creditors before the government can also help uh, bail out. So before a bailout happens, a bail in had to happen. So he was trying to avoid that, but now that that government is on its way out, um, probably there will be a, a caretaker government uh, which might not worry as much about these things. That so. So I think that that's what might happen. There might be bail-in and bail-out at the same time. Junior creditors become shareholders uh, or they lose some of their uh, bond face value at completely. Um, and there's some kind of recapitalization that the government also takes part in, contributes. Um, and that will save the day for now. I don't know how, how long it's going to last because you know one of their biggest plans is to sell some of the bad debt but it's still some. They still have so much bad debt, and they're not going to be good look going forward either. Wasn't there a plan put forth, I believe, for J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs to come in and in some way ring fence a lot of the bad loans and put them into a separate entity? Right. They were they were trying to sell off the worst of the bad loans, the sofrenzi, as they call it in Italian, um, and and. Um, we're using some private share, you know, credit and and government guarantees, etc. Um, but I did a study a couple months ago on that. Even when they do that, it, it's about half of the bad debt, but there's still so much bad debt. And 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 with those ratios, they'd be still triple the the levels of bad debt in in the European Union yeah. and double the bad debt rates in even Italy which yeah. has a bad debt ratio problem so well, 360 billion euros of bad loans on the Italian banks that is a lot Let's turn our attention now to gaming and our nation's capital. Here to tell us more, Jim Muren. He is the chairman and the chief executive of MGM Resorts International. Jim Muren, thank you very much for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. All right, so you're opening a $1.4 billion property. It's the MGM National Harbor Casino and Resort. It's just outside our nation's capital. And you said that this is a property that has a gambling floor bigger than the White House and it has an art collection that includes a welded collage by Bob Dylan, the uh, recipient of the Nobel Prize for Literature. Tell us about this project and uh, and what makes it so different. Well, it's been a journey of four years. It's uh, perfectly located it's on the banks of the Potomac, eight miles from the Capitol. Uh, we're viewing, as I, I sit here, the Washington Monument as we speak, and uh, right across uh, Old Town on over the Woodrow-Wilson Bridge. Three airports service this area, as you know, so we have a tremendous international interest of, of tourists that come to the Washington, D.C. and metro uh, Atlantic area. We've built something here that I believe is truly unique, the first integrated resort in a large metropolitan market in the United States. And, yes, we have a stunning art collection, 
we spent millions of dollars on uh, bringing some of the world's greatest artists and local artists together, as well as internationally acclaimed chefs such as Jose Andreas and Marcus Samuelson and the Batagio brothers and a tremendous amount of entertainment. Next week we have Boys to Men and then Lionel Richie and Bruno Mars and Cher and Earth, Wind, and Fire and Duran Duran and, uh, you know, it's like a uh, relentless amount of A-listers. Um, we really wanted to wow uh, the market and... Uh, early indicators are that we, we have. Jim, how important is it to MGM to diversify away from uh, Las Vegas and Macau? I mean, just today we saw um, you know, rumors that Macau was going to limit ATM withdrawals from uh, mainland China, which sent uh, shares of gaming companies, including MGMs, down. Uh, they've since rebounded as, as sort of the, the rumor was, was confirmed as being somewhat less important. But, but how important is it to diversify away from Macau? Well, diversification is always, always a positive. If you go into markets that are large, uh, where your market share can grow and be defended, and you see a, a future, um, and so we, we don't we don't like diversification for diversification's sake. There, there, there's gaming in 40 different states in the United States. We're in very few of them. Um, we only want to be in markets where we believe our non-gaming, our entertainment. Uh, DNA can bring uh, bring an incremental competitive advantage. So if you look at our portfolio, yes, we dominate in Las Vegas. We have 40% of the market there with properties like Bellagio and MGM and Mandalay Bay and Aria. But we also have the most profitable luxury resort on the Gulf Coast, Beau Rivage, the most profitable casino in Detroit, the most profitable casino in Atlantic City, Borgata. And now here in our nation's capital, this is a, a, going to be a very successful resort. The idea, if you can integrate these resorts together, create uh, synergy amongst them, you'll be able to diversify your cash flows, grow your business, and that's why I was so excited about this one. This one is, uh, i got to tell you, by the way, if this didn't work out, my wife would be mad at me. She's from Maryland, and uh, she said, leave it on the field, Jim, and I, I think we have here. What if you could just give us a little perspective on the gaming industry? Because I know that you joined the company, I think it was in 1998. You've seen it through tough times, a restructuring, a reorganization, uh, financing in order to keep the business afloat. Then you had that whole issue with the uh, Las Vegas uh, city center uh, property with Dubai World. Tell us the, the state of the gaming industry and what's working and what's not working. Yes, I've been around a while because I've been there since then, and I've covered this industry since 1984 when I was on Wall Street. So I could say there's been a tremendous change. This was a very property-centric, developer-centric industry in the 80s and 90s. It was fairly fragmented. Um, the, you had very uneven levels of operation and quality of resorts. And then we went through a corporatization of the gaming industry, a lot of M&A activity, occurred in the 80s and 90s, early part of 2000. And then you had the recession, which punished um, the economy in the U.S. and particularly damaged Las Vegas. And post that period, we've seen a remarkable recovery in the entire sector, um, but also uh, a, very a very big change in public perception of gaming. It's 
it's now at an all-time high in terms of the perception. Folks either uh, enjoy it uh, themselves or have no issue with others to do so. It's more mainstream. There are 2 million uh, American jobs in this industry. Uh, the, the industry itself is growing, but not everyone is doing equally well. And I think when you consider this industry like any other, quality counts. And that's why you've seen bankruptcies of properties in Atlantic City and other properties in the middle of the country that have not done as well because there was underinvestment early on, underinvestment on an ongoing basis, and the consumers have become increasingly uh, discerning and demanding. Um, so the industry today is doing well. Right. We benefit from a growing economy. MGM's doing quite a bit better than the industry at large, uh -huh. but we're all doing better. I want to learn more about President-elect Donald Trump's plan for energy, specifically with respect to environmentally conscious energy sources. I want to bring in Catherine Trawick, energy policy reporter for Bloomberg News, who's coming to us from Washington. Uh, Catherine, you co-authored a story that is tremendously interesting uh, today. Trump team's memo hints at broad shakeup of U.S. energy policy. Um, I'm trying to sort of square this article, which talks about how uh, the president-elect is trying to sort of maintain some of uh, President Barack Obama's climate agenda, or, or at least the nuclear power plants, uh, while also uh, including some people who have been known to be climate change deniers in his cabinet. Can you talk a little bit about the story? Sure. So we obtained a document uh, from sources at the Energy Department, which lists 65 questions that the transition team gave to Energy Department staff, basically just trying to um, get a sense of what they needed to know to make the transition go smoothly. But there were also a lot of very specific questions about, uh, as you mentioned, nuclear plants, what can be done to um, save at-risk plants that aren't competitive amid low gas prices, um, as well as asking for lists of every staff member and contractor who uh, participated in UN climate talks, who worked on crafting climate policy for Barack Obama's administration, um, and also which uh, energy department uh, departments were uh, most essential to meeting Barack Obama's climate agenda. Well, so, Catherine, one thing that um, sort of stuck, stuck out to me, so nuclear power plants are known to be a particularly waste-free type of energy, a particularly um, uh, uh, considered to be more environmentally friendly, correct? Yes, they are a uh, zero-carbon emission source. So the idea that uh, President-elect Trump's team is asking specific questions about how to uh, keep some of these plants running would suggest that they are looking at more environmentally conscience, conscious uh, sources of energy, no? I think so. It is a little bit uh, of a departure from the Obama administration uh, in that the Clean Power Plan, which was his uh, landmark climate uh, regulation, uh, didn't really do anything for nuclear plants and didn't adequately value the carbon-free contributions of nuclear plants. So I think that it's fair to say that folks on the Trump team view helping nuclear as a departure from past policy, even though 
helping nuclear uh, isn't it does contribute to uh, our goals of reducing our carbon footprint. Catherine, you you mentioned that uh, as part of the president-elect's transition team request, they wanted to know the names of employees of the Department of Energy who attended various United Nations climate meetings, correct? Yes. Is that normal operating procedure to ask for specific names of people? And are these people civil servants? In other words, they are career employees? They are. um, They're career employees as well as contractors. Uh, The bulk of Department of Energy staff are made up of contractors. Um, it is it is definitely normal to ask such questions just to make sure that the transition moves smoothly. But I will say that uh, sources within the energy department that we spoke to were alarmed by these requests, and that there was a fear that um, maybe they would be targeted um, for their role in uh, helping to craft climate policy. It's worth mentioning that someone close to the Trump transition team told us that those fears were unfounded, that this was more of an issue of transparency and an effort to let Republican lawmakers who've been asking for this information for years um, finally get the information that they've been looking for. Wait, so in other words, Republican lawmakers have been asking for the specific people on this team, the names of them, and they haven't been delivered until now? They've been asking, yes, for more transparency around who crafted these policies, the meetings, who's involved, that's that sort of thing. Uh, I cannot say that... Um, there, have, there has been a specific request for the names of all staff and contractors who ever attended any of these meetings. That specific part uh, could be new. I was just looking at Delta shares that are up uh, almost 50% since June. And I'm looking at United uh, Airlines, United Continental, up more than 80%. Yeah, that would have been the trade, wouldn't it? Yeah, by the end of June, and then you'd be happy today. Well, we're going to find out if if our our next guest bought uh, on June 24th. Frank Holmes, CEO and Chief Investment Officer at U.S. Global Investors. Frank, you have uh, an ETF, U.S. Global Jets ETF, which is the only dedicated airline industry-related ETF on the market. So do you think that this rally is just getting started, or do you think that we're kind of going to hit a plateau here? Well, I think uh, it's got tremendous opportunity for upside. In fact, I think back at that period of time, I was on this radio show, and we talked about it. So those people who were listening uh, and bought, bought into that it was so cheap. And what I try to explain to people back then is that you could buy American Airlines at five times earnings with a return on invested capital of 20%. And, and and I think that over time, what's taken place with Warren Buffett is that return on invested capital is, is, is the most important factor for picking stocks. And he didn't trust the leadership that they would destroy that capital that's happened before. That's totally different now. And another important factor for stock screens is what's called shareholder yield. And that is dividends paid, stock buybacks, and reducing debt. If you looked at the 100 and some odd industries in the S&P 500, that industry, the industry with the highest shareholder yield is the airlines. Frank, I wonder if you could just offer a little story or, or an anecdote about how you came to create Jets, because you have a background as really an expert in the world of commodities, and obviously Jets do use fuel, so that's a commodity. But you've got a background, you know a lot about the gold mining industry, a lot about the commodities in, uh, business. How did you come to put together Jets? 
well, it's called U.S. Global, and I'm traveling all the time, and I have millions of miles in all these uh, airlines. And I noticed that all of a sudden my options had dropped by 25%, say, to fly to New York or go here or go there. And the prices of my tickets started to escalate. And I had a look at travel costs, and I said, well, is there an ETF? I've got to get in this ETF business, and is there an ETF? There's no. There's no product for that. There was one that shut down, uh, but there was really nothing there. So I went out and said, uh, what's the biggest inverse relationship? And it's energy prices, and energy prices fall. Uh, then these stocks take off with profit margin, and that's why I created it. It's So it came from personal experience. It wasn't as experience. if you were, you know— plugging numbers into a computer or uh, you know, going out and finding what everybody would want. It was your own personal experience. Well, except that you said something that was really compelling to me, which is you, know, you wanted to get into the ETF business. And this has sort of been a theme that we have heard from uh, asset managers across the board. You this just wrote a column space. about this from about Deutsche Bank uh, offering well, I, I, a lower I, fee uh, ETF. So I guess I'm, I'm curious about Jet. So it started last year, correct? Correct. And um, it still hasn't climbed to that sort of key $100 million asset mark. What's the challenge for you with fundraising for an ETF, a new one? Well, it actually is one of the best launches because it quickly went to $50 million. Uh, and, and what I found on the travels was that everyone would quote that wanted to be negative on the industry was Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett said the fastest way to lose your money is is to put a million dollars in and you lose it in the airlines industry. And it was such a, a negative, he has such a powerful uh, uh, force of people reluctant to go in the industry. So now that he's changed his tune because the CEOs are buying back their stock, increasing their dividend, and uh, and, and the barriers to entry are very high. It's, it's next to impossible to create a new airport. So it's a moat stock. So... Now that Warren Buffett is more positive on airline stocks, have you noticed a surge of investor interest? Absolutely. We had a create the other day. That's new money coming in. And uh, I feel that uh, the factors that we said, if, if, if you look at the industrial category, and which, which airlines shows up in, and if you looked at uh, tra transportation such as trains and trucks, they traded 15 to 18 times earnings. These traded six. Uh, returns on investor capital, they are four times greater than trains and trucks. So this is the most compelling industry, and two million people fly a day in America. The index that you use in order to create the actual exchange-traded fund how did you come to select that? Well, it's called a smart beta one and two. I didn't realize the two, but the smart beta one is that we went and did all this thousands of hours of looking at what factors are the best to deal with the, the crisis the airlines went through. They went through bankruptcy. They came out of it. Why does Southwest not go through it? What were their, their financial factors that helped pick those stocks? And so then we did, we created five factors and, and that's how we picked them. Then we basically played what's called uh, Prado's Law and 80% of the stock are American. Uh, and, uh, but United, so, Continental, Delta, Southwest, they, American. And, so and they dominate it, but the smaller names are foreign. So 70% of the names are actually foreign, capped at 1%. So it's a very efficient way of capturing global growth. So now the industry is expected to make, uh, the industry globally is going to do about $740 billion in revenue, the whole world, and they're going to make about $36 billion in the world, America's 18 billion of it. 
You know, one thing that still sticks out in my mind is there still is this race for uh, lower cost airlines and sort of a race to the bottom. I mean, how much does that factor into the calculation? You just you just don't want to pay to use the overhead bin in the United Extra Extra economy. Well, I'm just saying, like this, which is they the, this just is, announced but, will happen in 2017. But this, is, this has been the the main tension, right? Is that a lot of airlines are concerned that they can't get the prices up and, and stay up, uh, with just based on the competition, right? Based on the sort of race to the bottom. I don't know if it's a race to the bottom, but I I think that it's becoming an oligopoly. Uh, and, and I think that when you go look even for pricing of tickets between America and United, it's very difficult, a big differential. Uh, and it's called yield management software, an algorithm that is used for stock trading, for trading, is now being used for pricing of these tickets. So I, I think that they have tremendous pricing uh, collaboration using technology. It's not you and I call and talk to each other, but it's technology. So it's not colluding if there's some sort of technological uh intermediary. The same thing with front running. If it's a if it's an algorithm that can see things faster and jump in front of your order, it's not front running. Frank Holmes, uh, what's the nicest uh, flight you've been on recently? Do well, people I've, notice? Do people come up to you and say, you're the Jets man? Yeah, not yet. Uh, they used to do it for the gold end. But on the Jets end, I would say the Delta right now is the most price competitive and gives me the most options. Well, it's interesting because they are uh, testing uh, coach uh, meals in coach free. Yes. So they're going in the other direction. And they were the first to buy a refinery to, ca- right. to control their energy costs. The old Sunoco refinery. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg.